This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Folks over at our affiliate group, uh, the Conic Bay Zen, uh, are going to be studying Four Noble Truths. Parnell, who's going to be leading that discussion, asked me to take a look at the text that they were using, uh, which is a translation or interpretation by the Buddhist scholar Donald Lopez. So I'm going to go through that and um, try to say something about uh, our own particular understanding of the Four Noble Truths and how it uh, differs in some significant ways uh, from what he's presenting. So it begins, one, all living beings experience suffering in one way or another. The world cannot be a place of lasting peace. So we begin with this um, truth of suffering, but it's left to us to try to understand the nature of that suffering. why it seems to be unavoidable. Why can the world not be a place of lasting peace? And one place uh, we can start is to ask ourselves, well, what kind of suffering are they talking about? And traditionally, uh, we focus on sickness, old age, and death. We might ask, are these problems in our life? Are there things that we should be able to solve, but we can't? And that's why there's suffering. The alternative, as we've uh, been discussing in other contexts, is to treat suffering not as a problem, but as a koan. Then the issue is very different. We treat suffering as a problem. We look at things like sickness, old age, and death as problems. We look for solutions. Even though the solutions might be very difficult or seem unattainable, uh, at some level we think that they are at least theoretically possible to imagine. You can imagine someday being able to cure all sickness. Old age, well, some researchers treat old age as a sickness. 
think about all sorts of genetic kinds of alterations that might prevent us from aging. And death itself. You get sci-fi visionaries who imagine consciousness can be uploaded to a computer, exist eternally. It's the software in some vast uh, computer mind that's achieving immortality. I would personally think that's a kind of reductio absurdum of the whole idea, but there are people who, when they take something like death as a problem, that's where it leads them to looking for this kind of more and more extravagant solution to the problem. The alternative though, as I say, is to treat suffering not as a problem, but as a koan. Therefore, its existence or its cessation comes from a whole different direction that we see in a koan like, where can I go to escape the heat and the cold? Summer, the heat kills the monk. In winter, the cold kills the monk. doesn't say that we can't sometimes treat heat and cold as problems to be solved. You have your air conditioner, you can have your fireplace or oil heater. There's a whole other dimension in which the solution is not solving the problem, but solving the gap of separation. Not see suffering as something that it's an intrusion in, into my life, taken away, leaving me intact and in who I was previously, just minus the suffering. To see all the things we talk about as suffering as intrinsic rather than extrinsic to who I am. You take them away, it's no longer me, it's no longer life. They're built in. Without intrusions. But that's the koan dimension of suffering versus the problem of suffering. Lopez then goes on to the second truth, which he expresses this way. Suffering has an identifiable origin. Karma, the principle of cause and effect. The causes of karma are desire, hatred, and ignorance. And this seems to be taking us down a very different kind of pathway, the one I've just spoken about, the koan pathway. So I want to look at this and uh, see how we might understand it. Suffering has an identifiable origin. 
karma, the principle of cause and effect. But then the causes of karma are desire, hatred, and ignorance. And that seems confusing to me because cause and effect seems very primary. It's, you know, something like gravity. It's built into the nature of the world. You can talk about it as a principle of interdependence or interconnection. Everything exists only in terms of relations to everything else. At least some of those relations are causal relations. But he then says the causes of karma are desire, hatred, and ignorance. I'm a little confused I don't he seems to be switching the meaning of karma from something fundamental like cause and effect to karma as when we speak about bad karma, which is more like the consequences of cause and effect. There say desire, hatred, and ignorance to the extent that they are causes give rise to effects effects are going to lead to suffering. But the mechanism by which they do so would be is the mechanism of cause and effect. So I think it's a little misleading to talk about karma itself having a cause. The cause of cause is so I think that's a confusing kind of translation or way of talking about it. The other dilemma here is that when we talk about desire, hatred, and ignorance, cause of karma, and then the cause of suffering in turn, it sounds like we're setting up sequence of problems that we're going to solve. The desire, hatred, and ignorance are something we're going to do away with. And I think most of us would at least be willing to get rid of two out of three. We say, yeah, I can do without hatred and ignorance. Uh, when we add desire to that list, all of a sudden it gets very complicated. And we're not exactly sure what we're signing up for uh, when we say we want to eliminate desire, that's uh, a whole other difficulty to discuss. Number three is freedom from suffering arises when the causes of karma cease. And so this is the idea that we're going to eliminate desire, hatred, and ignorance through practice. And we will be free from suffering. Now the problem again is this seems very much like a problem-oriented kind of language. And we can say that to some extent the Four Noble Truths were always themselves a kind of uh, expression of the um, 
difference between problem and koan in that there's a apparent superficial understanding of their meaning and then a, a deeper, more esoteric uh, understanding. You can say that in some way, more noble truths are written in a language that they could be um, parish Zen uh, or parish Buddhism, uh, a formulation of Buddhism uh, that's simplified uh, for the common person, uh, not a person who's necessarily uh, able to study esoteric texts or engage in monastic practice, but how do you spread the word to, to every man? What form can you put it that's going to reach the widest possible audience? And therefore, we use this language of freedom from suffering, as if Buddha has found the answer. This is, we, we know how this problem can be solved. That's sort of the carrot we use to tempt people into practice. But that at some level, we know suffering is not a problem to be solved. Some way it's inescapable, and in some way we're going to have to change our perspective on its nature and our, change our perspective on what it means to be free of it. And fourth noble truth is there's an eightfold path to the cessation of all suffering. The path consists of three groups of actions, training in ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Well, here I'm grateful that at least he uh, distills the eight down to three because I can never remember the eightfold path. It's one of the reasons I don't much like Indian Buddhism. They, they love lists. I can never remember lists of things. Uh, but here we say it comes down to ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And these are going to, in some way, be the counterparts or antidotes to the three causes of karma, desire, hatred, and ignorance. I think their order is not quite the same. We would probably assume that meditation is the antidote to desire, ethics is the antidote to hatred, and wisdom the antidote uh, for ignorance. There is a um, question here about what is the relationship between ending desire and meditation? What does that mean? What's the desire that we think being ended by meditating? Ethics we can see as a way to get a grip on hatred. Wisdom we can see as an alternative to ignorance. But again, ignorance, uh, we want to ask ignorance of what? 
probably need to go back and ask hatred of what and why. Uh, there's a, a problem built in here that um, treats desire, hatred, and ignorance is somehow foundational, uh, something that um, is being used to explain karma, but nothing is offered to explain the nature of desire, hatred, and ignorance. Why do we have those? What do they arise from? What are we ignorant of? What do we hate? What do we desire that we can't have? Well, what I would like to suggest as a um, modified reading of these, uh, this version of the Four Noble Truths Just to go back and say, instead of saying suffering has an identifiable origin in karma, we would want to go back and say, all, all of life exhibits two two characteristics, two undeniable characteristics, impermanence and interconnection. Let's put those at a uh, level with karma. And let's uh, even say that we're going to uh, sort of expand our understanding of the nature to, of karma as our resistance to the reality of impermanence and interconnection. Impermanence means everything changes. The connection means everything and everyone is inevitably dependent on others and other things. There can be no such thing as autonomy. There can be no such thing as independence. There can be no such thing as self-sufficiency. And it's these that we run up against over and over and over in our life. And we could say, But suffering, we might redefine as the experience of trying to control the uncontrollable. If we look at his list of desire, hatred, and ignorance, we could say the fundamental problematic desire is this desire to control the uncontrollable. That hatred is our angry reaction 
with our frustration at not having that degree of control over our minds, our bodies, other people, the world. And ignorance is fundamentally the ignorance of not realizing the inescapability of impermanence and interconnection. We're ignorant of that basic fact of life. It would be like being ignorant of gravity, cause and effect. It's just going to get you in trouble. Now our practice then is going to get reoriented through ethics, meditation, and wisdom coming to terms with permanence and interconnection. Meditation just forces us to see moment after moment the reality of change in our own mind, in our own body. Everybody comes to meditation thinking it's going to be some kind of mind control. I finally get my mind to quiet down. My thoughts won't wander. I'm able to sit peace, calm, maybe even bliss. No, I'll get a little glimpse of those and I'll have them and then I'll try to hold on to them or I'll try to get them again. And I'll fail and then I'll succeed and then I'll fail again. And we get over and over again this lesson. Changing uncontrollable nature of mind and life. And we run up against our frustration, and pain, and restlessness, and an anxiety. Hatred of how things are, as opposed to how we want them to be. Hatred of not being able to control the uncontrollable. And maybe very gradually a little wisdom sinks in that the whole project of problem solving, the whole project of trying to escape suffering through control and through autonomy, through a series of techniques, it's just basically wrongheaded, upside down, and can never succeed. When we settle back to a life just as it is, leaving everything alone. What happens to suffering then? 